Beloved, please open your Bibles with me this morning to Romans chapter 11. And uh, this is really what we're going to look at today is really the close to the doctrinal portion of this epistle to the Romans. And what I mean by that is, is that from chapter 12 on, what we're going to see is the application of the gospel, the application of what it means for us as Christians to be in Christ from, from, from chapter 12 on, that's what we're going to see. But before we get there, we read this glorious doxology that springs out of the heart of the apostle Paul. And in thinking about this and in studying for it, I agree with a multitude of preachers that have gone before me in saying this, that there is not a human tongue on that God has ever created that can do justice to the immensity and the wonder of this text. Nobody. And so my prayer as we look at this text this morning is that You'll hear Christ in the preaching. It'll be Christ that will unfold these words to us. That that He'll draw our hearts out in a similar doxology to Almighty God. So let's stand together. Let's read these words together. Romans chapter 11. Beginning in verse 33. We'll read through verse 36 and then we'll pray. Paul writes and he says, Oh, the depths. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him... And through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, all glory belongs to you. All praise, all honor, all dominion, and all glory belong to you and to the Lamb. You're worthy, Lord God, to receive from us glory and praise you are worthy to receive from your creatures whom you have redeemed full and hearty and heartfelt adoration fathers we come to these words this morning Lord, i recognize that they cannot possibly be exposited in the power of man they can't So I am pleading with you, Father, please, to fill me with the Spirit of God, to let the unction of your Holy Spirit rest upon me so that everything that I say is from you, that it is nothing of me, that all of my words are derived entirely from your holy writ, that I might speak as a herald of the living God. And I am praying, Father, that you will enrapture the hearts and the minds of everyone in this room. That things that we speak of, that we've heard much and with which we are familiar, 
will not breed in us boredom or contempt, but bring forth from our hearts what what those truths are designed to do, which is unrequited and full worship of the living God. Move in our midst and, Father, draw us out of our self and draw our hearts out to you. Speak to us. Shape us. Transform us. Mold us, Lord, according to your holy word. Help us to enter into the heart of Paul this morning. To see as he sees and to feel as he feels. And not just to borrow those things from him, but Lord, that they would be real in our own hearts and souls. Grant me grace, Lord, to preach your word as the privilege that it is. And to do it in the power, not of my flesh, but of your spirit. So that you might bring forth the fruit that is pleasing in your eyes. In the heart and in the, in the life of everyone in this room. And everyone who will hear this message. I am pleading with you to do these things, Lord God. Because only you can. Please, please enthrone yourself now. In the preaching of your word. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. You know, beloved, in this passage today, it's almost as if Paul sort of pulls back the curtain a little bit and gives us a glimpse of his heart. Because what we see in this text is Paul worshiping. We see Paul breaking forth into a doxology, into this proclamation of praise, into this, into this exalting worship of God, this awestruck confession of God's glory and His majesty. In fact, I picture it like this. He steps back, as it were, from everything that he has been teaching, and he surveys, and he contemplates all that he has been telling us in this epistle, right? The the, the unrivaled glories of the gospel and, and all that it promises, right? Salvation for sinners, who have made themselves by their own hand worthy of eternal wrath and judgment. A salvation that exalts and upholds both the holy justice and the mercy of God. A salvation that gives the forgiveness of sins and a righteous standing with God. Justification accomplished by the life and the death of Jesus Christ on behalf of sinners. A full and a free salvation that we receive by faith in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and not one that we can earn by our works. A salvation that gives us a perfect reconciliation with the God we've offended. A salvation that takes us out of the family of Adam, praise God, and out of his under out from under his ruinous headship, right? And brings us into the family of God under the headship and the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul thinks about the blessings of what, of being in Christ by faith, the great blessings of being in Christ by faith, being freed, for instance, from the dominion and the power of sin, being made alive to God so that we're no longer dead in our sins, but we can now walk in the newness of life, adoption, into the family of God by the Holy Spirit, the certain and faithful leading 
of God's Spirit in our sanctification. Sovereign grace of God that makes certain the salvation of God's chosen people upon whom He placed His special and distinguishing and electing love before the foundation of the world. He considers how God pursues. I was so glad to hear Jake pray in that way. How God is the one who pursues those whom He's foreknown. No matter how great their disobedience, no matter how deeply opposed they have been to Him, and He humbles them. And He regenerates their stony hearts, and He calls them, and He creates in them the faith that lays hold of Christ, where once there was only the barrenness of determined unbelief. He reflects on the truth that God is so for His people that He gave His own Son for our salvation. How no one can bring any charge against God's elect that can stick because God is the one who justifies. How no one can condemn one of His own because Christ has stood in our place and suffered our condemnation. How nothing and all of creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And he thinks about how God is, will, will be glorified in the, in the redemption of all of his elect, Jew and Gentile, and how he's providentially ruling all of creation to the end that every one of his elect will be saved to the praise of his glory and that nothing and no one can thwart his rule. Now Paul considers all that. You know? He thinks this is this is what Paul lived and breathed and ate and slept. He considers all of this. He thinks about all of this and what it means and and he just breaks out in praise. He can't contain himself. He exalts in God. He magnifies and extols the Lord. He glories in his majesty and in his redemptive plan because he's overcome with the splendor of God. Beloved, these words, this text, these are not, this is not the language of passive disinterest, is it? Is it? This is, this is not the language of somebody who's self-consumed or self-focused or who's ignorant or indifferent. This is not the voice of someone who is reserved and unemotional and, and unmoved. This is the language of somebody who's overcome with the glory and the majesty of God. In other words, to use the common vernacular, Paul is fired up in this text. He's excited about what really matters. He's filled with passion for the living God. This is where theology, beloved, becomes doxology. What we've got here is not Paul. This is not, this is not Paul in his normal state of didactic doctrinal teaching. Building precept upon precept and line upon line. This is Paul responding with a heart that's filled with true joy in the Lord, with a doxology of passionate praise. And yet sadly, sadly, Paul's response is one that all too often escapes contemporary Christians. Isn't it? Isn't it? Oh, you don't want to admit it. I'll tell you, it is. I've been a t- pastor for 27, almost 28 years. I've seen this. 
I've seen it here. It's a response that too often escapes contemporary Christians. Why is that? Why is it that we can get excited about so many things, but it seems we can't get, if you will, fired up about God in Christ? What's the matter with us? Why are we that way? I've thought a lot about it. And I think there are several reasons, not in any particular order, but just several reasons that, that contribute to the fact that we don't glory in God like we ought to. Part of the problem, beloved, is that we're in an age where we are encouraged far, far too often to self-glorying, aren't we? To see in ourselves as independent, autonomous, self-determining individuals, right? We're enamored with ourselves, and when we improperly judge our own imagined greatness, we necessarily, beloved, devalue true greatness as it is found in the Lord, don't we? We think we know more of God than we do. In America, we are in in this, I, I, I don't know what to call it, I guess a Christian milieu of doctrinal poverty and ignorance, of biblical illiteracy, and of nebulous spirituality. We, we reduce God to His blessings, and His blessings we reduce to temporal things that eventually will perish. We're far too enamored with the world. Far too, far too captivated with the world system and the things that the world desires and the, and the lusts of this world and the, you know, we're so captivated with the world that we fail to consider the glory of God. Really, what we fail to do is heed James' words as being real. You know, remember when James says in James chapter 4 and verse 4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. We hear those words and we think, well, what do I do? I live in this world. And we're to be in the world and not of it, aren't we? We're not gripped with the glory of God because ours is not a generation that is particularly given to the contemplation of God, is it? One of the things that marks us is that we, we, are, we, we are given to incessant contemplation of ourselves, aren't we? And our own condition. And we let people know what our condition is. Not because we want help being delivered from it, but so that they can work around it. We're encouraged to think of God in transactional terms. How God can satisfy our own selfish desires and not what we intrinsically as His people owe to Him. Ours is a generation that is shaped by feeling and opinion. Really, opinion rooted in ignorance rather than shaped by biblical truth. Ours is a generation that seeks to domesticate God and make Him serve us, to bring Him down to our level or raise ourselves up to, to His I hear professing Christians all the time that treat God as an asset to be leveraged rather than the Lord and the King who is to be the central figure of our lives, to be obeyed and praised. We minimize the fear of the Lord. Oh, we shouldn't talk about the fear of the Lord. That might upset somebody. Good. We don't talk about the fear of the Lord. 
We don't talk about His holy perfection, His absolute righteousness, His sovereign authority and our accountability to Him. So we have this very small and diminished view of sin. And for that reason, we lack the proper perspective of what God has done through the Lord Jesus Christ to accomplish our salvation. Ours is a generation that has deluded itself into believing that we can call evil good and good evil. And we can put darkness for light and light for darkness. And we can put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And that's a virtuous thing rather than an affront to the holy God. We reduce and we redefine and we diminish God. We diminish sin and rebellion against God, the eternal realities of heaven and hell, the helplessness of man, the universal need for a Savior, the worth of salvation, and all of that combines to mute the proper response we should have to the glory of the gospel and the glory of God. And it leads us as Christians to to regard it as an imposition when worship, corporate worship on a Sunday morning goes longer than we think it should. What are you going to do in heaven? Time out, Lord. This, this worship of you, this has gone on long enough. I'm being facetious. But there's a point. We don't see any of that in Paul. Things that I just described. We don't see that in Paul. Paul gloried in the Lord. He exalted in the God of his salvation. And beloved, that ought to make us stop and think for a moment. Follow with me. In the unfolding of the sovereign plan of redemption, right? Something with which Paul was intimately acquainted, wasn't he? He's overcome with praise. But he shouldn't be special and unique in that regard. There are things that are special and unique about Paul. He's an apostle, capital A, apostle to the Gentiles. We're not. But this characteristic of Paul should not be unique to him. Again, he's an apostle, capital A. He knows and he exposits the gospel all the time, right? I mean, that's what he does. He knows it more comprehensively than we do. And he preaches it far more than any of us have ever heard it, right? And yet he's not bored. He's not indifferent. He doesn't get to this section of Romans and be like, oh, the gospel again. He's not apathetic or unmoved. He's enthusiastic. He is passionate. He is wholehearted because the gospel never becomes old hat to Paul. And the truth is that all theology, rightly grasped and rightly understood and rightly treasured, if you really get the gospel, it leads the mind and the heart to doxology and to praising God for his glory. How is it? How is it that Paul got to this point of this emotionally charged effusion of worship and wonder toward God. It's simply this. It was through the serious contemplation of the glory of God in the gospel. And as familiar as Paul is with that gospel, familiarity does not breed contempt. Rather, it breeds awe. And it leads Paul, first of all, to rejoice that God is God and we are not. Look what he says. Look at the way he begins this exaltation in verse 33. He says, oh, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Here's Paul, right? The chosen apostle to the Gentiles. The one who had been taught, listen now, personally by the Lord in the wilderness of Arabia. To whom great mysteries had been revealed the one who had been caught up to the third heaven remember and heard things that the, that were unutterable 
He's the one who wrote half of the New Testament. And yet, here he is, still overcome with the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Paul knew a lot. Paul knew a lot. And he rejoiced in much. And yet, here's the thing. As much as Paul knew, there were depths to God that he could never fully comprehend. He couldn't get it. And that expression, oh, the depth, it's an expression of astonishment. It's, it's the Greek word bathos. We get from that, we, we, we get the word bathosphere, that where you, you know, you get in that little, that little submarine that takes you seven miles deep in the Marianas Trench, right? That's deep. There are depths to God that Paul can't possibly understand. That, that, that expression, he's saying in effect, look, I, I see clearly the surface, and I see a little under the surface. But man, there are depths. There are depths to God that are beyond finding out. What I can see is glorious. But, the, but I can't plumb the depths. And it's a humility, a worshipful humility on the part of Paul. I mean, what he knows of God is true, right? What he knows of God is true. What he knows of God is certain. What he knows of God is infallible and inerrant. But Paul doesn't know it all. He doesn't know it all. He knows a thimbleful. But man, God is the ocean. It, it amazes me how people today think they seem to think that they should be able to understand God, critique God, comprehend the fullness of God, right? To understand everything that he does and the reasons why he does what he does and what he thinks and how he does things. It's remarkable. That's why there are so many people who will make ignorant pronouncements regarding what they believe that God will and won't do. Please don't be one of those people. Please. Don't be one of those people. Now, don't get me wrong. It is certain that God will never do anything that's contrary to his revealed attributes, right? God's not a God that he should, or God is not a man that he should lie. He is faithful to the attributes that he's revealed, right? But do we really believe that God has revealed all of his attributes? Do we really believe that we can comprehend all of God's attributes? If we could, that would make us a God. There is a mystery in God that we cannot begin to trace. And it's the worst kind of hubris and arrogance to think that we know everything there is to know about. We don't even know ourselves, right? We don't even understand ourselves. Paul confesses that he is not an expert on everything there is to know about God. Now, some of you Paul lovers are like, that's blasphemy. No, it's not. This is Paul confessing it. I don't know everything. On one hand, he's, he can certainly praise God for what's been revealed to him, what he's understood of God's person, what's been given to him to preach of the saving work of God through the Lord Jesus Christ and applied by the Holy Spirit through his regenerating and saving and sanctifying work. He worships God for what he knows, but he also worships and praises God for what he does not understand. You see that? There's more to the person of God, and there is more to the being of God, and there is more to the attributes of God, and more to the character of God and to the ways of God than you and I can ever comprehend. In His creating and in sustaining of all things, in His operation of the universe, and His exercise of His sovereignty and salvation, in the dispensing of His gifts and His grace according to His will, in His government of, the his, of history, in His directing of our lives... In all of these things, there's a depth to God's riches and wisdom and knowledge that we cannot 
ever fully know, even in his plan of redemption, which is what Paul has in mind primarily here. When Paul refers here to the riches, look at it, to the riches of God, I take him to be marveling in what God, what Paul calls in other places, the unsearchable riches of Christ, Ephesians 3, 8, right? He's marveling at the riches of God's kindness, at the riches of his mercy to sinners, at, at the riches of his grace to his elect, the riches of his goodness and his generosity in Christ to save anybody. I mean, Paul certainly loved to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. The ones that are revealed to us now. Justification and sanctification, adoption, redemption, atonement, love, joy, peace, righteousness, glorification. But here's the thing. As wonderful as those riches are, beloved, they only scratch the surface. You ever thought about that? That our experience of the riches of Christ in this lifetime, it just scratches the surface. In Christ, God delights to show the riches of His kindness to us for all of eternity. There's more to come. There's a depth to the riches of Christ that we can never fathom in this life. Riches we can only glimpse in part right now. There's more to be revealed. The unsearchable riches of God in Christ Jesus that we enjoy now. Listen, they're beyond anything in this world, right? And they are beyond anything that this world can offer. And they are beyond anything in this world that anyone can possess, right? There are great riches in being in Christ right now. But, beloved, understanding the depth and the fullness of those riches awaits the day when we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. Now, if we can't fully comprehend the riches of Christ in this life, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't try. That doesn't mean you shouldn't try. That's not an excuse to just be adult and a dunderhead. Some of you probably never even heard those words. Dunderhead. It's a really good word, actually. I don't know why it's falling out of use. What it ought to do is encourage us, in the words of Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1, to seek the things that are above where Christ is. Right? Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. There is a depth to the riches of God that we can't comprehend right now. There's more to come. And then Paul praises God for his wisdom, right? He says, oh, the depth of the wisdom of God. And we talk about, beloved, the wisdom of God. What we're talking about here is how God does what it is that he does. We're talking about the infinite genius of God in the gospel. That's what we're talking about. And what Paul's getting at is, you know, only God could have conceived a plan of salvation that satisfies the justice of God while at the same time redeeming sinful, wrath-deserving man, and in which the very God who has been offended pays the cost of that salvation so that he gets all the glory. Only God comes up with that. Divine substitution and the atoning sacrifice of of God's Son for sinful man, that could not ever have come from the mind of, of man. Plans all God's. He ordained it, and he fashioned it, and he completed it from beginning to end, and so he deserves the glory. And any, every, every element of the gospel springs entirely from the wisdom of God. And that's why it's so important that we get the fullness of the gospel right. Do you understand, if we remove any piece of the gospel, we are undermining the wisdom of God. 
That's why I agree with Charles Spurgeon's assessment when he said, I do not believe we can preach the gospel if we do not preach justification by faith without works, nor unless we preach the sovereignty of God in his dispensation of grace, nor unless we exalt the electing, unchangeable, eternal, immutable, conquering love of God, nor do I think we can preach the gospel unless we base it upon the special and particular redemption of his elect and chosen people which Christ wrought out upon the cross. Nor can I comprehend a gospel which lets saints fall away after they are called and suffers the children of God to be burned in the fires of damnation after having once believed in Jesus. Such a gospel I abhor. Me too. He goes on to say, if people therefore call us Calvinistic, I wish that they would do better. They could call it Augustinism or Paulinism or better yet, they could call it the grand old gospel. That God out of the riches of his love and mercy would purpose to save rebellious, helpless sinners from his own wrath. That he would do it at the greatest of costs to himself. The death of his son on the cross. That he would pour his love upon elect sinners. That he would make dead hearts alive and change the desires of the sinner's heart. To see Christ and him crucified as the greatest treasure of his soul. That he would give the gift of faith to the unbelieving. And ensure that his grace would bring forth holiness in the life of the one who has received it, that God would save any of us at all when we deserve hell and all according to his perfect wisdom. Listen, that ought not create in us an offense, some indignation, that, that God would exercise his rights as divine sovereign in fashioning our salvation. How dare he do that? Rather, it should... Create in us deep gratitude and joy and trust and hope in the God who perfectly saves sinners according to his divine wisdom. Amen. And then, then Paul extols God's knowledge. Oh, the depth of the knowledge of God. He's talking about there God's comprehensive knowledge of all things, right? Of all people, of all events, including every conceivable possibility and eventuality, right? But specifically, as it regards salvation, beloved, there are two things that I want to bring out from, from this text about the knowledge of God. All right. First one is this. God knows you inside and out, Christian. Right? He knows you inside and out. And when he fashioned this gospel, he did so, listen to me, knowing every single one of your sins that were yet uncommitted because you didn't exist yet. He knew every last one. The sins of your passion and your desires, your sins of motive, the sins of your mind and, and, and the sins of commission, the sins of omission, all of your sin, God knew it inside and out. And at first, that is a fearful thing, isn't it? That I lay exposed before God, He knows everything? At first, that is a fearful thing. It's terrifying. But it yields Good fruit. Because by realizing that God knows our sin inside and out, it moves us to see our deep need for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, right? 
whom God in His remarkable steadfast love and mercy has provided. Stay with me. God has ensured that every last sin that you have committed because He has perfect knowledge of you and all your sin, He has ensured that every last sin that you have committed and will commit has been accounted for upon Christ. In other words, there are no stray sins out there somewhere that might suddenly arise which God has not taken into account and which will therefore disqualify you at the end of time. God knows them all. He's laid them all upon the Savior. The blood of the Lamb has paid that debt and He's expunged the guilt of your sin and borne them all away so that nothing remains that can condemn you. God in His knowledge ensures all your sins are paid for and therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But here's the second thing. Because God knows you, Better than you know yourself. Because God knows you. God knows what makes you tick. He knows just how to humble and break your hardened heart. He knows just what pressure to apply. To what degree and at what time. He knows and predestined all the events of your life. So He knows just what time is right to bring you to hear the gospel from the vessel that He appoints. And when to open your ears and to give you the gift of faith and repentance. According to his perfect knowledge of you, he brings you to salvation at just the right time and in just the right way, the perfect way. The gospel that saves each of us is the same gospel, yes? Yes? But beloved, the circumstances of our salvation are as different and individual as we are. God doesn't use the same exact plan for everybody. We're not cookie cutters or cookies that have been cut. We're not cookie cutter Christians. And considering all this, Paul says, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. I mean, you're tracking with Paul. Do you get what he's saying? Do you, do you understand what he's laying down here? He's like, God's judgments. You know what that, that refers to God's decree, his eternal decrees, his sovereign decrees. Paul says, man, they are unsearchable. They're unsearchable. It's beyond for beyond finding out. They're literally impossible for us to track. Even if we try. Man, why did God create Satan? Why did God ordain that evil and sin exist? Why did he ordain the fall? Why does he choose to save those whom he saves? Why doesn't God save everybody? How exactly are human responsibility and divine sovereignty fully reconciled in our minds in salvation? Why would God send His Son, give up His Son, condemn His Son in order to rescue His enemies? Why would He even choose to save any of His enemies? That's just a sampling, right? I mean, we can go on and on. Now listen, we can give. I want you to hear me when I say this. We can give some inerrant and infallible and definite answers to each of those questions from Scripture. Right? True answers. But hear me when I say this. Partial ones. Enough to satisfy the sincere soul. Right? But the fullness of the answers to those questions, and many more like them, they escape us because God's decrees are beyond our full understanding. Well, I'm not comfortable with that. Well, you know what? God didn't ask. No, really. I mean that. I'm not being flippant. It doesn't matter 
that you don't like, if you don't like that, if you're like, I, I don't like that I can't understand all of God's decrees. What is that to God? Really? And God's ways, the manner in which God for his own good pleasure accomplished what he's willed to do, the, that, the things that God does, the way he accomplishes what he will, what he's willed to do. Paul says his ways are inscrutable. They're, that's a word that means they're unfathomable to our fallen minds, even minds that are renewed by the word of God. Why don't you hear me when I say that? Listen, we got to remember we are creatures and God is what? Creator. And that distinction doesn't just disappear when we're saved. That distinction will always exist, beloved, even when we are in heaven and we're glorified and we're as much like God as we can possibly be. The finite, the finite cannot grasp the infinite. We, even in heaven, we will not know all because we will not be divine. We will be glorified. Listen, that whole little God's lie that these guys go around parading on TV, we're not little gods. There's one God. You're not Him. One God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. None of us have those names. We will, we won't be divine. We'll be glorified as much as any creature can be, but we'll still be creatures. And so here's, really it comes down to this. Really it does. We're we're kind of faced with a choice, right? You can either choose to trust in the wisdom of a brain, your brain, that was not created to know all of God's mind and ways simply by virtue of the fact that you're a creature. And so you can choose to give or withhold worship according to your wisdom. Or we can believe God's word. And we can worship him both for what we know, what he's revealed of his sovereignty and his grace and his mercy and his justice and his goodness and his love and his power and his character. All about that which is revealed and displayed in the gospel and in the, the history of redemption. And we can worship him and we can trust in him for what we do know but also for what we do not know. So which will it be? You can worship according to your own wisdom, which is, honestly, that's the quintessence of stupidity. Or you can believe the Word of God. Paul doesn't understand all the judgments and the ways of God perfectly, but he worships Him. He worships God for what he knows and for what he doesn't know. And so must we. In fact, beloved, look what he does. He drives this point home with Scripture as he always does, right? I mean, Paul is forever going to the Scripture. That's what makes him, you know, a faithful preacher. He goes to the Scripture. He goes to the Old Testament, right? Some of you are looking at your watches. You're getting nervous. Don't worry. First of all, it doesn't matter. Like, the clock doesn't matter. I know it matters to y'all. It doesn't matter to me. Really, it just doesn't. And I'm fairly certain it doesn't matter to God. Don't worry. It's not like I'm going to take six pages to do these next few things. Look at what he says. He asks these two or I guess maybe three thundering questions. It depends on how you break it up. Like two quotations, three questions, whatever. But look what he says. He says, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? We sang that, right? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Now, the resounding answer to those questions is what? Nobody. Nobody. Now just look for a second with me at, at this first question, right? Or first two questions, however you want to count it. It, it comes from 
Isaiah 40 in verse 13. That's a chapter in which Yahweh, by the way, is extolling his majesty and his sovereign authority over man, over and against man and, and his idols, okay? And Paul quotes it from the Septuagint and he says, For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Now here's Paul's, Paul's point here is twofold, okay? First, he just bluntly drives home the point that God is highly exalted and none of us fully knows his mind, right? I mean, he doesn't argue it. He just states it, right? There it is. We don't know God's mind. And then second, since none of us knows the mind of God, he says, who of us is in the position to give him advice? Right? I mean, who of us can give God counsel? Who of us has anything to add to God, right? Like, do you really think God's going to show up one morning and be like, hey, I've really, this has been a conundrum to me. I'm trying to work this out. What do you think? If you have a vision of God and he does that, that's not a vision of God. That's Satan disguising himself as an angel of light. You got nothing to add to God. He doesn't need your advice. He doesn't need our counsel. We have nothing to say to God. And that ought to silence us, shouldn't it? Shouldn't it? Here's the astonishing thing, though, about fallen mankind. Is that apart from the transforming power of God's sovereign grace in our lives, we actually refuse to give God the things that are due Him, right? Glory, love, honor, praise, thanksgiving. But we really sure are quick to give Him advice. Aren't we? Man, sinners are quick to tell God how he should run the world and, and, and what he is doing is wrong and warn him, God, if you don't run it my way, I'm going to reject you. How foolishly, how ridiculously foolish that is. I'm going to reject you if you don't do it my way. Finite, sinful human beings, are they really in a position to tell God how he ought to do things? I mean, really, God has all wisdom and all knowledge. Your job, my job, is trust, believe, and obey. That's it. And worship. Trust, believe, obey, and worship. Then look at the second question. It comes from Job chapter 41 and verse 11. And if you're familiar with the book of Job, God asked this question of Job when Job is questioning God. You know, he's endured a lot of suffering, right, in trial. And he's questioning God. And he's demanding an explanation for everything. I don't want to be callous towards Job here at all, because you know what? If we were in his position, we'd want the same, wouldn't we? Wouldn't we? And this verse is in the middle of several chapters when God is making clear to Job that he's not God. And, and, and this sounds hard, and that God doesn't owe him an explanation. The verse in Job reads, Job 41, verse 11, Who has first given to me that I should repay him. And then it says, whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. It's mine. Capital M. Well, what's the point? The point Paul is making is this. God doesn't owe anybody anything. He's indebted to nobody. Everything belongs to God and, and we offer him nothing no matter what it is. We offer him nothing that does not already belong to him in the first place. So we can't make God indebted to us. You following? We can't put God in a place where he owes us or where we can make demands on him. There's nothing that we can give to him that demands that he repay us or reward us in a good way. And that's what makes the gospel all the more amazing, isn't it? 
That salvation is a gift to those who are in no position to demand anything from God. Because anything and everything that is this side of hell, beloved, is mercy. And heaven is a gift of God's grace. We can't ever put God in our debt. There are some Christians who think they can. I want to disabuse you of that thought. You cannot put God in your debt. You can't. Not by coming to church. Not by serving Him in some ministry. Not by loving your neighbor or by giving tithes and offerings. Not by sacrificing for His sake. Which, let's be honest, is not something that we talk much about anymore. Not by offering praise to Him or by obeying His commandments. We can't put God in our debt by doing those things because those are all things that God deserves from us that rightly belong to Him and obligations placed upon us that we must offer to Him. God is nobody's debtor. And He saves whom He saves entirely by His grace. Again, the heart of both of, of these Old Testament quotations is God is God and you are not. And those are blunt words. And they're unapologetic words. And they hit us in the feels. But they're designed to put us in our place, aren't they? And beloved, we need to hear them. Then Paul concludes this doxology by offering just one all-encompassing acclamation. Look what he says, verse 36. He says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. For from him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Paul delighted in this truth, man. From him, through him, and to him are all things. And there are a lot of ways that we can express that. There are a lot of ways that we can get that idea across, right? We can say all things come from God. They all exist in God. And everything ends in God. Or we can say everything is of him as to its source. It's through him as to its means. And it's to him as to its end. Or we can say all things are of Him in the plan and through Him in the working and to Him in the glory which they produce. We can say He's the source of it all. He sustains all and everything leads back to Him and to His glory. Everything is from God, through God, to the praise of God's glory. And it's especially true of salvation. It's especially true of His saving and sanctifying grace. Your saved life. Want me to prove it to you? I will. In fact, inescapably. Do you have a desire for God? Do you? That's not a rhetorical question. Do you have a desire for God? Do you long for His Word? Do you desire the fellowship of Christian people? Do you desire to pray? Do you desire, do you seek to worship God? Is that your priority above all else? Do you treasure Christ as Savior and Lord, as the only one who can save your soul? Do you desire holiness and to stand faithfully against temptation and sin? Does there rise within your soul a heart that says, God is the one who commands my allegiance? He's the one who constrains me by His love. He alone is worthy of my worship and my devotion now and forever. I live only for His glory and not for my own. My life is not my own. I've been bought with a price. 
Do you long for Christ to be glorified? Do you long for the Father to be exalted and magnified? Do you long to be filled with the Spirit and be used of God for the praise of His name? Now, not perfectly, of course. Not at all times. We are all still growing in Christ. But is there a growing pattern? Are these things true of you? And if you answer yes, then this is what I need to say to you. Where do you think those desires come from? They don't arise in the heart of a natural, unbelieving, lost man or woman. But only and always. Let me say this again. Only and always. One more time. Only and always. In the one who has been touched by the sovereign grace of God. If those things are not true of you, you are not a Christian. You may have head knowledge. You may attend church. You may be able to argue with unbelievers about how they're wrong and going to hell. But if those things are not true of you, you're not a believer. You're not a Christian. You're not a saved man or a woman. Quit fooling yourself into believing that you are. But if they are true of you, and praise God, I know it's true of so many of you. It's because you've been touched by the sovereign grace of God. Because those holy desires find their origin in God. And they're sustained by God. So that God might be glorified in and through you. And that's why Paul concludes by saying, to God be the glory forever. Amen. God gets all the glory. He receives all the glory now and forever. He deserves glory from His people. And what does that mean? Does that mean that God does not have glory unless we give it to Him? No. No, that's not what that means. Beloved, this is one of those places where theological... Well, everywhere. Everywhere actually requires theological precision, but especially here. It's where it matters. We've got to understand the difference here between intrinsic and ascribed glory. They're not the same thing. God has an intrinsic glory that belongs to Him by virtue of who He is. Right? Are you hearing me? He's got an, an inherent glory about Himself because of who He is. He's got an inherent fundamental glory that's integral to His person. It can't be added to. It can't be diminished in any way because God's glory is the sum and substance of everything that God is. And it's immutable, His glory is. It's unchanging. It can't be added to and it can't be diminished in any way and not even by unbelievers who refuse to recognize it. An unbelieving man can't lessen God's glory any more than a blind man can lessen the brightness of the noonday sun. Just because you don't see it doesn't mean it isn't there. God's intrinsic glory is immutable. But the glory that we give God, that we give God, as we magnify and praise and worship Him for everything that He is and all that He has done, beloved, that's what we call ascribed glory. Right? Ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due His name. That command is given us. When we confess that God is worthy of glory, when we confess that He's worthy in His sovereign majesty and power, in His self-existent splendor, in His holiness and love and justice and truth, and everything else that makes God who He is, when we confess that He's, He's worthy to receive glory, that's what it means to ascribe glory to Him. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. 
The more that you understand and embrace and perceive God's intrinsic glory, the more you see it, who He is and what He does, the more you will ascribe glory to God as you were created to do. In fact, to ascribe glory to God is one of the most distinguishing characteristics of someone who has received the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ and been brought from spiritual death into eternal life and from spiritual darkness and into spiritual light. Saved people ascribe glory to God. To Him rightfully belongs all the glory that we can ascribe to Him. And so Paul just punctuates all that he said with his strong, hearty, fervent, Amen. Amen is a great word. It is a multifaceted, multi-purpose word. You can use it in so many different contexts. When a preacher's preaching and he says something that's true, you say, amen, right? When it moves your soul, you say, you know, we, we say it at the end of our prayer. So let it be, right? It's one of those multi-purpose words that can mean truly it is true. Truly that's true. Or yes, it is so, or so let it be, or I tell you the truth, right? And that's Paul's final affirmation. Truly, I say to you, truly it is true. It is so. Let it so be. To God be the glory forever. To God be the glory forever and ever and ever and ever. That's what that word forever means. That there never comes a time when it will be appropriate to stop ascribing glory to God. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, you finish it. First begun. We have no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. There will never be a time when ascribing glory to God is like, ah, we've done that for a long time. Now, considering these words, words of Paul, I want to just make a few observations, okay, about what it means for us to live a life of doxology to God. What it means for us to live a life that makes the glory of God known. First, I want to say this. As we look at the way that Paul was consumed with the glory of God, shouldn't we, shouldn't we make God's glory the aim of our lives? Do you remember what Paul said? Imitate me what? As I imitate Christ. And in Christ's life on this earth, he did everything that he did in order to do what? To point to the Father, to give glory to God. So what does that mean? First of all, here's what that means. Let us get rid of, be rid of once and for all, our excuses that we parade out right around this time whenever anybody talks about a full-throated, wholehearted, emotional, passionate response to God. I want you to hear me when I say Emotion, properly focused, beloved, is not a bad thing. But we'll say things like, well, I'm not very emotionable, emotionable. I'm not very emotional or excitable. I'm not really easily moved because I'm an intellectual. I didn't get excited at my wedding or when my kids were born. I, I just don't have that in me. Okay, so let me get this straight. You're an utterly boring human being and you think you're a greater intellectual than Paul. Is that right? Is that what you're saying? Do you remember what the Lord Jesus Christ said to the Pharisees at the triumphal entry? Do you remember when when the whole multitude... Luke tells us of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. All the mighty works that they had seen. The greatest work was yet to come. 
But all that they'd seen. And they said, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And the Pharisees said what to Jesus? Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Shut them up. Remember what Jesus said? I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Aren't you more than a stone? No, aren't you more than a stone? Hasn't God done more for you than for a rock? Hasn't God given you multiplied reasons to glorify Him? I want you to think about something for a moment. I want you to really think about this with me. Every single one of us, all of us, has been created with the ability to be awestruck. We have been created with the ability to be passionately overwhelmed. To be enthralled and be astounded. And to say that you aren't is to be dishonest and to deny part of what it means to be a human or to stuff down foolishly what has been given to you for your blessing. It's been woven into each one of us, this ability to be awestruck in order to prepare each of us to rightly behold the glory of God. The capacity to be amazed, awestruck, jaw-dropping, overwhelmed has been given to you to prepare you to rightly behold the glory of God. You've been made and redeemed to revel in the greatness and the power and the glory and the holiness and the awesomeness of the surpassingly glorious God. Listen to me. Refuse to allow yourself to be unmoved. Refuse. Take hold of yourself. Refuse to allow yourself to be satisfied with less than what you've been made for. Beloved, it is precisely the greatness of God, His absolute sovereignty, His incomparable glory, the riches of His grace, His wisdom, His knowledge, all of that, all that He is that drives us to praise and worship this One who is worthy. Only a God of impenetrable mystery, of inscrutable sovereignty, of holy judgment and infinite mercy can truly satisfy our souls. And if we say we know him, yet we remain unmoved. You show me one person in Scripture, saved man or woman, who acted in that same way. They don't exist. The Psalms were not written only for those who are emotionally leaning. They were written for us all. How can we truly love a God who's not worthy of reverence and who does not leave us awestruck at his majesty and his mystery? The true God, the living God, is worth our fear. He's worth our reverence and our love and our faith and our obedience in the whole of our lives. Jesus didn't say, you shall love the Lord your God with your mind. And that's as far as you got to go. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with what? All your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. In fact, it all leads us to where the Westminster Shorter Catechism begins, right? What is the chief end of man? This is one of the greatest questions ever. What is the chief end of man? What is it? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And you know what, beloved? Forever starts now. And it starts with saying amen. It starts with saying amen. Can you say amen to God? Can you say amen to His glory? Can you? Can you say, you know what? I have defied the holy, eternal, only God. And I am hopelessly lost in my sin. And I deserve God's holy wrath. Amen. 
God provided my only hope for salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ and that He lived the life that I could not live and died to death that I deserved so that my sins would be forgiven and I could be imputed with the righteousness of Christ. Amen. If God had not first chosen me, I would never have chosen Him. Amen. I'm justified by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in the person and the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Amen. Sin no longer has dominion over me to make me obey it. And I'm free to live to the praise of His glory by the power of His indwelling Spirit. Amen. He's working all things together for my good. Because I love Him. And He's called me according to His glorious purpose. Amen. He's conforming me right now to the image of His Son so that one day I'll be glorified with Christ forever, receive an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, that is kept in heaven for me. Amen. And those whom He foreknew, He called. And those whom He called, what? He justified. And those whom He justified. You glory in the Lord. Can you say amen? Second, beloved doxology has got to lead to a life that is characterized by obedience to Christ. Right? Or else, doxology is just merely lip service. Right? Are you following with me? We don't think much of a man, or a woman for that matter, who says they love their spouse and then runs around on them. We call that, what? Lip service. Hypocrisy. Paul didn't merely offer up words of praise, but... He offered up his life as a living sacrifice, right? We've been redeemed in order that he might be holy, that we might be holy and blameless before him. Beloved, doxology demands more than lips. It demands life. That is why when we get into Romans chapter 12, the very first thing that Paul is going to say to us, look at it, is this. I'm not going to preach it right now. I want to, but I won't. Look what he says. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that's the gospel, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Right on. Third, if a life of doxology proceeds from theology, like we were talking about at the beginning, right? Then we need to immerse ourselves in God's truth. We need to immerse ourselves in God. Do not be satisfied with emotional excitement that is empty of the truth. Worship must be what? In spirit and truth, right? So immerse yourself in the Bible. Immerse yourself in the revelation of Christ as the way and the truth and the life. Immerse yourself in the, in the, in the gospel and in the nature and the character of God. Because when you see Him as He is, doxology must break forth. You can't restrain it. Beloved, the purpose of theology is to make God, to make, so make God in Christ so real to our hearts that the false saviors that attempt to deceive us lose their power and grip. That the false words of the false prophets and the falsehoods of this world cannot gain a footing in our soul because we're enamored with God. So that all of our life is rooted in Him. The Word of God, the truth of God, the revelation of God, it's got to grip our hearts. We must desire the pure spiritual milk of the Word of God because it's only the Word of God that is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, right? And to the discerning of the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Only the Word of God. 
Only the scripture, all of it, is breathed out by God. And profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The psalmist asks and answers this question. How can a young man keep his way pure? A young man, an old man, a young woman, an old woman. How can anyone keep their way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Beloved, immerse yourself in the word of God. Charles Spurgeon said, visit other good books, but live in the word of God. Immerse yourself in it. Humble yourself under God's teaching, under his reproof, under his correction and training. Dig into God's word with expectancy. Dig into it with a hunger, with a humble heart and a teachable spirit, and you will find Him. Feast like a hungry man on God's truth, and it will ignite your passion and your fear and your awe and your love and your obedience and your worship, and you will ascribe to God all the glory that's due His name. The Scriptures, beloved, are not given to us merely to be a library of theological platitudes or proof texts, but to confront us with the character and the person of God and to drive us to glory in Him. Doxology falters where theology is ignored. Fourth, stay with me. If true theology leads to doxology in all of our lives, then that doxology ought to lead to missiology. What do I mean by that? What am I, what, what am I saying? In other words, here's the deal. If the preaching and the believing and the learning and the living of the gospel brings glory to God, the glory that he deserves, ascribes glory to God that belongs to him. We must invest our lives wisely. Look, knowing the truth as it's revealed in Christ, it leads us to praise God, right, for his greatness. But if it ends there, then doxology fails. When we're gripped with the truth of who God is, of everything that he's done, when the Spirit of God makes the words of Scripture the feast of our souls, when Christ is our all-satisfying treasure, when we reverence and fear the Lord, beloved, it must overflow from our lives onto the lives of those who do not know Christ. Doxology must not be a dead end. Because here's the deal. You know this. Every human being will ultimately glorify, every human being will ultimately magnify the glory of God, right? Right? Every human being will ultimately magnify the glory of God. Rebel sinners will not rob God of one iota of His glory. They will in fact glorify Him in hell as vessels of judgment prepared for destruction under eternal condemnation. But should we not labor in love that those rebel souls might glorify God instead By God's glorious redemption of them? Shouldn't that be our desire? Chiefly? Supremely? God has given to us the gospel. He's called us to preach it. He's called us to take it forward into the world. That's not the preacher's job. That's all of our jobs. Remove from your mind small thoughts of God's willingness to save. We just look at people. That's it. Just light that person off. You know, there have been more than one person that I've written off where apparently God didn't get the memo. Prophet Micah says, who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression 
for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Beloved, believe that what God has done for you, he can do. He will do for another. Fifth, next to last, to that end. In light of all of this, man, we ought to cry out to God to glorify himself in our pulpits and in our churches and in this nation once more. Charles Spurgeon commanded his students and the preachers of his day, he said this, he said, let your sermons be full of Christ from beginning to end, crammed full of the gospel. As for myself, brethren, I cannot preach anything else but Christ and his cross, for I know nothing else. And long ago, like the Apostle Paul, I determined not to know anything else, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. People have often asked me, what is the secret of your success? I always answer that I have no other secret but this, that I have preached the gospel, not about the gospel, but the gospel, the full, free, glorious gospel of the living Christ as the incarnation of the good news. Preach Jesus Christ, brethren, always and everywhere. And every time you preach, be sure to have much of Jesus Christ in the sermon. We must have Christ in all our discourses, whatever else is in or not in them. Those who do not like Jesus Christ must have him preach to them till they do like him. For they're the ones who need him most. We need to pray, beloved, that the church in our day will return to this very thing. The zeal for the glory, the zeal of the church for the glory of her king, beloved, it will never rise until pastors and missionaries and seminary teachers and people in the pews make much more of the king. When the glory of God Himself, when the glory of Christ saturates our preaching and our teaching and our living and our conversation with one another, and when He prevails above all of the worthless and empty prattle of relevancy and strategies and psychological buzzwords and cultural trends and fads, then people in this world and in the churches might begin to know and feel that God is the most important being in the universe and not themselves. And how we stand before God is the most important thing about our lives and the life of every single human being. And that the spread of His glory is more important than all our possessions and all our plans and all our preferences. The church and the world, beloved, it is starving For the glory of God. It is starving for the greatness of God. It is starving for the majesty of God. It's starving for the gospel of God. Let us feed souls by making His glory known. And if those of you here this morning who are not yet a believer, listen to me, I am not, I'm not going to stand up here and minimize your peril. I won't. I won't stand up here and, and, and pretend to dialogue with you. That, that is not my calling, to dialogue with you. My calling is to preach and herald the gospel of Jesus Christ to you. I don't need to understand every single aspect of your life if you're not in Christ. What I know is this. You are under the condemnation of your sin. You're under the wrath of God. And if you remain in that condition, in opposition to Almighty God, 
an unbeliever in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross to pay the penalty of your sin and to make you righteous before Almighty God. If you continue in your sin, you will stand before God on the day of judgment and you will be eternally condemned to the torment of hell. I'm not saying that to scare you. I'm saying that to wake you up and maybe scare you a little. You should be scared. You sinned in the face of God knowingly and willfully and brazenly and repeatedly. And God is holy and you're not going to escape his judgment on the day when you stand before him to give an account for your life. But I want you to know, I want you to know there is a rescue available to you. There is a savior that has been sent into this world to, to live the life that sinners couldn't and to die to death that sinners deserve and arise again on the third day and demonstrate his power over sin and hell and death and the devil to give you eternal life, to wash away all of your sin and make you righteous before God, clothed in the righteousness of his own dear son. It's a gift of incomparable proportions given to you who do not deserve it if you will simply repent of your sins and believe on Christ and surrender your life to Him today. Do it. For the sake of your soul, do it. For the glory of God, do it. Glorify God, not in your condemnation. Glorify God in His redemption of you. Through your faith in Jesus Christ. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Let's pray. Father, these words are words we need to hear. They're words that need to sink deep into our souls. They're words that, Father, need to confront our hearts. You truly are worthy of all glory. You're truly worthy of all praise. You are worthy of all exaltation and majesty and in everything, Lord. And, and we, we are a people as redeemed, you know, children of the living God that ought to make it the very center and central focus and purpose of our lives to ascribe all glory to your holy name. Help us do that. Please. Lord, convict us where we need convicted. Correct us where we need corrected. Instruct us where we need instructed. Train us, Lord, where we need trained. And for those who are here in this place that do not know Christ, I am praying you will bring them, you will bring them today to a saving faith in Jesus as Lord. Please do your work in us as you deem fit, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.